Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Fear. None of us like that word. And I have a hunch you don't like that feeling. Today, I'm going to be interviewing a guest, and we're going to be talking about fear, and we're going to be talking about what fear is true fear versus false fear, intuition versus paranoia? When is the voice of knowing versus the anxiety rush that can come from paranoia? The four assumptions of fear, surrender, and how that actually works to actually surrender, and uncertainty to possibility. And you know how I like to talk about possibilities because this is the place where inspiration and possibility meet. I hope you enjoy the interview. I will circle back after my interview with Lissa. Do you feel overwhelmed with fear deep inside of you? Are you stuck in fear? Today's guest is New York Times bestselling author and has a new book out to help you, The Fear Cure. Dr. Lisa Lisa Rankin is a mind-body medicine physician, author, and speaker. Lisa has been a guest on the show before talking about mind over medicine. And in this interview, we're going to talk about fear and how to move out of your fear. Lisa, hello and welcome back. Hi, Corinne. I'm happy to be here. So I want to first start out because you do such a great, um, you give the your readers this great parameters about what's true fear and false fear. So I'd like to start there before we go into the rest of fear. Sure. Well, first, I just want to even frame the concept of fear because so many people don't even know they are operating from fear-based places or making their decisions from fear because we, we normalize it. We call it stress, right? So if you ask people, are you afraid? No. Are you stressful? Of course. And we kind of wear stress like this badge of honor. Like I'm, I'm stressed. Therefore I'm a bu- busy, valuable, productive member of society. <laughs> and so we've kind of normalized it. But of course, you know, when you really look into the whole concept of stress, it's like, or, you know, I'm stressed about work, for example. Well, really, aren't you afraid to tell your boss that you need to set boundaries around how many hours you're working or whether you're answering your cell phone after hours? Or, you know, if we say we're stressed, we're stressed about our relationships, aren't we really afraid of abandonment? Like there's all kinds of fears that are tied into what we call stress, but we don't necessarily acknowledge that. So I just wanted to sort of clarify that first. <laughs> I think that's really important. Yes. But true fear versus false fear, you know, most of us have an ongoing monologue, and, and it's not even a monologue, it's almost a dialogue going on in our minds, and it's us arguing with ourselves. So we'll have a thought that says something like, I want to follow my dream, and then the argument comes in, you can't do that, you don't have the money, and then the dream will come back, but what about, what about the fantasy of all of the people that I'm going to serve as I step into my calling and live out my life purpose? And then fear comes in and starts arguing. And it could be kind of funny. I, in, As I was interviewing people for the fear care, 
some people are really great at kind of taking that witness consciousness where they take a step back from their mind because they've been meditating for years and sort of watching their mind. And they were able to give me dictation of what actually is going on in the mind when they're having these arguments. And it's kind of hysterical. Like, you sort of imagine that if there were a human that were sitting next to you, speaking to you, the monologue of what your mind is speaking to you all the time, you would put that person in an insane asylum. <laughs> it makes no sense. Right? But we actually sit there and listen to the mind, and we take advice from it. We're like, oh, you're right. I shouldn't follow that dream because it would be stupid to invest my retirement account in following my purpose or, or whatever. So, you know, the, the importance of distinguishing true fear from false fear is you know, obviously fear is here to protect us from a physiologic survival perspective. But fear is also, you know, something that's completely holding us back from living in alignment with our soul's mission in life or our truthful, authentic nature in life. So true fear, you know, there's two kinds of true fear, and I'll distinguish them from false fear. True fear is meant to protect you. So this is, you know... The, the tiger is chasing you and you're running away terrified. Well, that's a genuine fear. That's a good fear to have because it activates the fight or flight stress response in the body. And it puts all of your physiological mechanisms in order in order to help you run away from the tiger. And if you're concerned about the survival of the human organism, <laughs> this, this is a good thing. We want to keep that. And there's actually some disorders that kind of disable true fear. And people don't live very long if they don't have this kind of true fear, right? They they just walk off of cliffs and, you know, befriend snakes and, <laughs> you know, uh, hang out with tigers and it, things don't go very well. So you see this with like sociopathic children where they just aren't afraid and they'll just jump in front of cars. So true fear is a good thing. Um, false fear, on the other hand, is all of the imaginary fears that we have, all of the thoughts in our mind that think they're protecting us, that are actually just kind of paranoid ruminations about potential disasters in the future that may or may not come true. And what makes it difficult sometimes to distinguish between true fear and false fear is that it's not just the tiger chasing you that can be true fear. Sometimes the thoughts that appear in our minds are actually not paranoid, false fear, you know, imaginary disasters, sometimes it's intuition. And true fear can show up in the form of intuition. And this can be, for example, you know, somebody comes to watch the kids and you get this dropped in thought that says, don't trust the babysitter. And this is really important because these are the kinds of thoughts that we need to be able to distinguish from paranoia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because paranoia can also say, don't trust the babysitter, right? So how do you tell the difference between intuition and paranoia? And there's a, there's a whole great section in Gavin De Becker's book, The Gift of Fear. I love this book because it's, it's written by a threat assessment specialist. This is a guy who makes his living determining whether, you know, when the president gets a death threat, whether they should be afraid or not. Is this a true threat or not a true threat? And as part of his research, Gavin DeBecker studied victims of violent crimes and interviewed thousands of them and found that almost all of them, before the crime was committed, had an intuition that was warning them about the criminal, and they ignored it. You know, they had a thought that said, don't trust the babysitter, 
But the rational, logical mind came in and said, oh, she comes highly recommended. She looks perfectly normal. Like, I have a date tonight. You know, I don't want to cancel. And so they talked themselves out of the intuition and wound up, you know, being harmed. So intuition is there to protect us, not just from things like violent crime, but it's there to protect us from making reckless decisions about our money or, you know, making, um, you know, making decisions about relationships that might put the relationship at risk. So it can be tricky and there's a whole bunch of tools. I think there's you know, almost 30 different tools that I teach in the fear care about how to, how to come into right relationships with fear because it's not about curing fear. The name is sort of a misnomer. It sounds like, oh, there's a cure for fear. (laughs) But really it's about letting fear cure you. And I kind of think of fear, you know, I'm trained as a physician. And so I think pain, I, uh, physical therapist Val Zajacek, I was talking about him on my PBS special about the fear cure. And he talks about PAIN, the acronym P-A-I-N, as pay attention inside now. That PAIN is a marker for the physical body to say, look inside, something's not right. And I think fear is similar. It's kind of our way of looking into the interior of the psyche to say, pay attention inside now. We're afraid, well, what what thought or belief or self-sabotaging behavior is, is acting out here and telling us to pay attention inside now to our inner landscape because that's probably a finger pointing to something that's in need of healing, something that's a childhood pattern or an inherited fear. There's a whole th- section in the fear cure about generational fear where we can literally, from a, a genotypic perspective, we can literally inherit fear from our parents and be afraid of something that we have no logical reason to be afraid of. They did studies on mice and demonstrated that this is this is the case. So, you know, being able to kind of ferret those things out so that we can take the lessons from fear and then kind of let go of, of letting fears that aren't true fear make our decisions. And then all of a sudden, you know, we become liberated. We can make decisions from a much more expansive place that allows us to step truly into who we are. So Lisa, I want to circle back to this idea about intuition versus paranoia and how do you, you pay attention to when you have fear and there's your, it's your intuition that's telling you something. What are the things that you do? Well, you know, it's not, it's not just me because I'm actually still sort of a neophyte in learning to make this discernment. I went out and interviewed hundreds of people who are very in touch with their intuition to say, how do you tell the difference? Because I can tell you how I do it, but I was more interested in looking at patterns of how lots of people do it. And, you know, I got lots of different responses from people. Some people, you know, some people who are very intuitive get kind of clairvoyant visions or they hear voices or they get precognitive dreams or they get this sort of direct knowing that comes in as, you know, a pre, like a, uh, a just claircognizant sort of way where you just know something and you don't know why you know it. Uh, so, the, you know, people get kind of intuitive information in lots of different ways. But the thing that I found the most helpful is that people said when they had an intuition or a gut instinct, it had a different feeling in the body than when they had a paranoid thought. So, for example, a paranoid thought like, 
don't trust the babysitter. We'll kind of ramp up the nervous system, right? You'll, your heart will start racing. You'll feel sort of anxious and jittery. The mind will start ruminating. You know, it'll start this circular thinking. Um, and, and so you can notice this kind of anxious circling that tends to go with a paranoid thought. And the body will often feel clenched. People will have like tightness in the solar plexus or tightness in the chest. Again, everybody's body is, responds differently too. But an intuition comes in as this very calm, very grounded, um, very relaxed feeling in the body where there's no um, hypervigilance of the nervous system. There's no circling of the mind. It's just like a dropped-in knowing or a dropped-in picture or a dropped-in voice that says, go check on the babysitter. And the body is not in fight or flight. The, real, the, the nervous system stays in relaxation response. Now, the mind may kick in. So the mind may start arguing with the thought. And then there may be uh, a, a physical response or a mind response that becomes more anxious. But the original thing just drops in. I had this happen to me recently where I was in dealing with a difficult relationship. And my mind was trying to figure out how to figure it out, how to manage it, how to control it, how to keep myself safe, how to keep the other person safe. And, you know, the mind will go back and forth with its pros and cons and, you know, making its lists and making a case and trying to make a different case and all of that. And I had a dream. First, I had a dream about the relationship that gave me a lot of information. And then, like, a day later, when I first woke up, I had this dropped in, this relationship is not going to last. And it was very calm. It was very, I noticed my body. It was very, you know, even though it's a relationship I'm sort of attached to, like I, it was very non-attached. It was very neutral. And then my mind was like, wait a minute. No, I don't want that. So I was watching the process happen in myself where I'm sort of getting this intuitive information and then the mind is arguing with me. So that was the most common thing that I noticed from people is that they had this very calm response to go check on the baby, you know, there's a fire in the baby's bedroom or, uh, you know, this relationship is going to end badly or whatever. And these people that you interviewed about intuition, were they always good at intuition or is it something that they learned how to cultivate? You know, I think we all are intuitive and some people come by it more naturally than others. So I know for me, this is, like I said, this is a new tool. I, I was completely out of in touch with my own intuition until I quit my job as a doctor in 2007 and kind of started on this spiritual path. And my it's been a, a slow journey of increasingly, you know, increasing my ability to tune into that inner voice that I now trust a lot. So in the beginning, I would get kind of my the way that I would get information about how to make good decisions, it didn't come so much in, internally, it came externally. I would get these synchronicities or these signs from the universe. I would get, you know, people that would show up that would give me messages at just the right time or, you know, doors would close. I would sort of get the, I call it the cosmic no, <laughs> you know, and it would, it would feel like protection, even though it felt like disappointment, even though it was not getting what I thought I wanted. Um, you know, it would, it would come, for example, I would get all these synchronicities and signs that would point me to an opportunity that I would say yes to. And I was there for a year doing something that I loved. And then I started getting 
synchronicities and signs that showed me it's time to leave. And I was like, wait, I don't want to leave. This is, this feels like a good thing. But I would start getting, you know, things weren't going well. It was one thing after another of, you know, no ease and flow in the opportunity. And I started sensing, oh, maybe I'm supposed to leave, even though it's not necessarily what I want. So my, in, I started having to learn from kind of getting external signs that helped me tune into internal stuff. And now I'm not as dependent on the external things because I, I get more and more of a sense of, wow, is this a good investment of my time or money or not? For example, I'll give you an example. Um, at the beginning of the year, I was sitting down with my CEO, Bruce Cryer, who was the former CEO of HeartMath, and we were making some decisions about my business. How do, how do we want the business to go in 2015? And I had gotten this feeling that didn't make any sense to my mind that said, I need to keep a lot of spaciousness in my schedule in 2015. Don't overschedule myself. I didn't know why. So I told Bruce this, and he's like, well, okay. But, you know, if we don't schedule a lot of things, then how are we going to generate revenue to pay everybody's salaries and keep the business afloat and all of that? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so fear can come in then, right? And it says, wait a minute. Intuition is saying keep your schedule spacious, and fear is coming in saying we're not going to generate revenue if we don't schedule things that generate revenue. So what do we do in that situation? And I've spent enough time kind of trusting this intuitive knowing that comes in and seeing that things go well when I trust it, even if I don't understand why or how or how things are supposed to work out. And, you know, so I, and my CEO kind of knows that this is how I run my business, that I, I make intuitive decisions about my business. And when we look backwards, things tend to go well. So I told him that, and he said, well, okay, we'll, we'll leave your, your schedule spacious, even though we don't know why. And this meant canceling the nine-month program that I usually run for medical doctors in the Whole Health Medicine Institute. We decided instead we usually have two arms of that program, and we decided to put the doctors into the shorter program that I normally do for healthcare providers who aren't physicians. So instead of doing two programs, we decided to do one program. So the nine-month program that we canceled is our number one revenue generator. It's how we make most of our money in my business. So, you know, the fearful part of me is like, oh, no, how do I, how, how are we going to make that up? And why would I not do that? And shortly after we made the decision to cancel that program, I got an invitation from Bharat Mitra, the founder of the Uplift Festival, to come spend the month of October in India. Now, this is not a paid opportunity. I'm not going to get paid to spend the month of October in India. And he also said, I want you to keep the first two weeks of December and the whole month of March of 2016 open for some other things that I might need you for. None of these were paid opportunities. And so I decided to do that. And that, that made sense because had I scheduled the nine-month program, I would not have been able to say yes to an unpaid month in India. And since then, a whole series of things have unfolded and the bills are getting paid and, you know, sort of magical synchronicities are opening up in my business. And it all comes down to the fact that I was willing to make a trusting decision in something that didn't make any sense at a time when it really didn't look practical for the business. So that's just kind of one, like, practical example. But I could give you hundreds of examples of how I make decisions in that way so that something something larger than my fear is making my choices. And the more I do it, the more things seem to go well. It's very, 
it's a very interesting process and kind of hard to describe. I'm noticing as I describe this, like, is this making any sense to people who are listening? No, I think it is, but I want to clarify for them because I know your backstory. It's what you did is counter culture of business planning 101. Creating the yes. space, be- and it wasn't that you have this huge trust fund or this huge savings that's no, going. No, 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 <laughs> no. In fact, I still had business debt from the fact that I went two hundred thousand dollars into debt after quitting my job as a doctor and spending my entire retirement account selling my house. Um, I had to pay one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to free myself from my medical malpractice tail in case anybody sued me in the future. I had to borrow money from my family, put money on credit cards. So it's not like I'm sitting on a trust fund. (laughs) Like literally I have, you know, a team of people that are all dependent on me to pay their salaries. So it's a, it's a huge risk when I'm making decisions like that. And, you know, fear is always trying to protect us. So fear is saying, oh no, no, you can't keep spaciousness in your schedule. You need to make sure you pay the bills. But intuition is saying, don't worry, you're going to be fine. Your bills are going to get paid. You just need to trust that I'm going to guide you somewhere where the bills are going to get paid maybe in a way that's different than you thought. Mm-hmm. And so, because the, there can be huge fear around money uh, in right. our in our culture. <laughs> and I know you've worked with Barbara Stani and, and she's been a guest on the show. So how do you, you, you have big expenses, you have employees that you need to make sure you are the leader right? You're the the commodity to sell to people and you want to create space. How do you not get wrapped up in your fear of money? Oh, well, (laughs) that is a week-long workshop, honestly. (laughs) Like the answer to that question is not something I can even answer on the radio show. The fear cure answers that question, but it's it's not a simple thing. It literally is about walking the spiritual path. Mm -hmm. And there's no like five steps to enlightenment, <laughs> right? So, so people love to try to soundbite mm-hmm. the answer to that question. And it's not simple. It is a deep commitment to trusting what, something larger, whatever you want to call it, God, the divine, the universe, your soul, your highest self, trusting something other than your small self, your ego, your protective personality, And, you know, most of us, we live in a culture that is ruled by fear. And fear comes from that small self. It comes from that limited part of us that is always trying to protect us. I love Sue Mortar's definition of the ego. She calls it the protective personality. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have that part of us. It, You know, it, it, it came into being when we were children, often when we felt unsafe, And we made all sorts of decisions and created these limiting beliefs, often about money. So money is a big one that plays out with our fear. All sorts of limiting beliefs about our worth, about our lovability, about abandonment. And, you know, it creates these limiting beliefs and self-sabotaging behaviors that keep us in these circular patterns that limit us. So how do we free ourselves from those limiting beliefs and self-sabotaging behaviors? Well, that is the spiritual path, you know, (laughs) And like I said, the fear cure is filled with tools for how to do that. I'm about to teach a a workshop at Kripalu where we're going to go deep into that on May, between May 29th and 31st up in Lenox, Massachusetts. So it's a, it's a deep practice. And one of the key tools for me, I'll give you one tool. There's, like I said, there's like 30 tools Mm -hmm. in fear cure. But one of the tools that really changed my life, I learned from Tosha Silver. 
which is that, I, and I have to remind myself of this tool, I swear. I have to remind myself at least 10 times a day. It is such a practice. It's a vigilant practice. But anytime I notice a decision that I'm trying to make that I feel confused about or a problem that I think I have to solve or a desire that I think I have to bring into being, like an unmet longing, something that I really want, that I want to try to get, then every time I notice that I'm doing that, then it's time to call upon this practice. And it's a practice of deep surrender, of asking for help from this something larger, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to, I'll call it my soul, just to, to give us a word for it. And I'm going to call upon my soul rather than my ego to make that decision. Because the ego, and when I talk about the ego, I'm not using the like egotistical or arrogant definition that people sometimes associate with the ego. And this is why I like Sue Mortar's protective personality. I'm When I'm talking about that part of us, it's the small self. It's the part that has created all of these limiting beliefs and these ideas about what we need to do in order to stay safe and our whole concept of who we are, our self-image, our worldview, it's all tied up in that part. And that part of us thinks that we need to keep the world safe. And it's based on this worldview. I talk about it in the fear cure as the four fearful assumptions. The idea that uncertainty is unsafe, that loss is, that we can't handle losing what we cherish, that it's a hostile universe, so we have to protect ourselves, and that we're all alone. And obviously, if you have a worldview that says you're all alone in a hostile universe where uncertainty is unsafe and you can't handle losing what you you cherish, of course you're going to be afraid. But there's a whole other worldview that you can inhabit where the opposite of that is true, where uncertainty is the gateway to possibility, where loss is natural and can lead to growth. And we can all think of times where loss broke us open, where it helped crack the shell of the small self, to bring us into closer contact with something larger, to bring us closer to the realization of the soul. And, you know, many of us have examples in our own lives where we realize that maybe it's not a hostile universe, that maybe the things that made us feel like a victim actually were purposeful, and that it opened us up into soul growth, that it helped us grow as, as spiritual beings. And that instead of being all alone, we're all one. You know, in the mystical traditions, and many religions teach this in various ways, and now things like quantum entanglement are bringing science into it, where maybe we're not all alone in a hostile universe. Maybe we are all one in a purposeful universe. And this is the kind of worldview that we see in indigenous cultures, these animist societies that really believe that we're all connected with nature, that we're all connected to one another, and that rather than kind of living in this scarcity mentality uh, where there's not enough and we always are in competition, that we can actually rest in the, in the oneness, rest in the peace and the connectivity of the oneness. And I know it starts to get abstract in this way, so I want to bring it back to this kind of practical tool that I use, which is that every time I notice a decision I'm trying to make or a problem I'm trying to solve or a unmet desire that I want to bring into being, I make a practice of what Tosha Silver calls offering. And this is a practice of asking my soul to help me make this decision or solve this problem or bring this desire into being. 
But in the wake of the ask, it's a real letting go, a real surrender, like a real trust that maybe maybe this thing that I think I want is not in the highest good. It's not going to bring me deep fulfillment. It's not going to be aligned with my soul. That it's just something maybe that my ego wants. And it's not necessarily what my soul yearns for. And this practice has absolutely changed my life, Corinne. It's, I can't, I, I can't explain the metaphysics of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, why asking for help when I'm feeling stuck or scared somehow opens a doorway into the mystical mm-hmm. that it somehow brings into being synchronicities and miraculous support such that some, I, I'll give you another practical example. I was trying to make a decision. My friend Dennis and I were thinking about teaching a writing workshop in Peru in August. And we weren't sure, is it the right thing to do? Is it not the right thing to do? I'm going to be doing a lot of international travel for this book that I'm writing called Sacred Medicine, where I'm studying anomalous healing with shamans and Qigong masters and such. So I wasn't sure I wanted to leave my daughter and travel internationally. We were confused. But we had put a down payment on the space, and the the people running the space said, well, you need to commit within 24 hours or you'll lose the down payment. So here I am trying to make this decision, and Dennis is trying to make this decision with me. And I realized my ego was trying to make the decision. My mind was trying to weigh the pros and cons. And instead, I wanted to employ this other practice and make an offering of this decision. And the offering goes something like, you know, please help support me and help me make the decision. If this is something that you want me to do, show me the way and make it easy. And if not, stop me. And help me make this decision. And ideally, and I don't usually like to do this as part of my practice, help me within 24 hours. (laughs) Because I'm going to lose my money if I don't make the decision in 24 hours. And so Dennis and I both decided we're going to be on the lookout now. For the next 24 hours, we're going to be on the lookout for signs. Whether it's a dream or that dropped-in, calm, neutral, inner knowing, or an external sign from the universe. And we checked in 24 hours later. I literally walked into Starbucks and there was a big sign. It said, say yes to Peru. (laughs) And it was like this new Peruvian coffee. But I took a picture of it. I sent it to Dennis. Say yes to Peru. I was like, really? And over the next 24 hours, I got two more signs and he got two signs, all of them saying yes. So then the then even though the mind can come in with fearful thoughts about, oh, well, how, what if we don't fill the workshop? How are we going to pay for it? Am I going to be away from my daughter too much? Is she gonna, am I going to be a bad mother? But now all of a sudden we've asked for divine support and we've gotten five yes signs within 24 hours. It just calms that part down. And it makes it feel very clear that, oh, well, yes, we're going to teach the writing workshop. So we're now teaching a writing workshop in Peru in August. <laughs> and how sign up's been going for that? I'm sorry, what's the question? How have signups for the writing workshop been going? Oh, we for haven't that? announced it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> we haven't even, I haven't even, in fact, it's on my calendar for today to write the sales letter for, for the writing <laughs> workshop. So I, I love that story of, of that offering and in that process that you do. There's a passage in your book uh, from Dr. Christiane Northrup, who's also been a guest on the show. And can I read it? Can I share it with sure. the... Sure. So... 
it was when you were on your passbook tour for Mind Over Medicine and you said you were trying to figure out how to rescue the tour when I reached out to Dr. Christiane Northrup. Oh, that was two book tours ago. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that was for What's Up Down There. That was in 2010. Okay. And who offered me this gem of wisdom. Lissa, you are brilliant at doing, but you need to learn how to receive. Be less sperm, more egg. Christiane recognized that I was in the midst of a dark night of the soul, and while she could have waved her magic wand and rescued me, she wanted to help me learn an important lesson. She emailed me, Lissa, of course, you are a doer. There's no way to get through a surgical residency if you're not. But then in order to thrive, you'll find that what got you to where you are will kill you if you continue. You're coming upon the developmental stage where the doing will really bite you in the ass if you don't learn how to receive. And so when you were talking about this tool that you use with the surrender, it sounds like you have learned or you're learning how to receive. Yes. And, you know, it's funny you brought up Christiane with that because Christiane is the one who introduced me to Tosha Silver's work because (laughs) both of us have really resonated with this message that just Mm -hmm. feels like truth. Mm -hmm. And I've been practicing this for about two years now more actively. I mean, Christiane definitely kind of introduced me to that idea back in 2010. But the practices that I've learned since I met Tosha two years ago have absolutely transformed my life. Because, yes, I'm asking, it's almost like, I sort of imagine like the seen world and the unseen world. And it's like, okay, we have this three-dimensional human world, and then there's this unseen world of spirit. And it's an increasingly thin veil between the two. And it's almost like there are all these angels and spirit guides or whatever, like divine support on the other side of the veil. And they're like, they're bored. They're unemployed. They're sitting there. They've got nothing to do. And they can't help you unless you ask. And then all of a sudden, if you ask and you're willing to let go of that, go at grasping at what it is that you think you want or what it is you think you have to figure out or solve, then all of a sudden they can roll out the red carpet and make it a piece of cake. And I don't want to undermine, like it's, it's not as simple as I might make it sound because it doesn't always come within 24 hours the way it did when Dennis and I were making that offering of the decision about, about you know, the Peru workshop. And it doesn't, it often doesn't come giving you the answer you want. You know, sometimes it looks like the closed door. It's the cosmic no. Mm-hmm. And part of it requires being courageous enough to let go of your attachment to what it is that you think is going to be good for you. And I love, there's a quote in Tosha's book that I love. She says, the very act of grasping for the feather creates the wind current that pushes it away. Ooh. And I love that visual because you can just see like the fingers grabbing at something. Like, I want this, I want this, I want this, right? I know for me, it's, I'm, I, I find it the hardest to practice this when it comes to relationships. It's easier for me to not grasp at something in my business because it feels less close to my heart. Even though my business is very close to my heart, I've had lots of practice trusting that my business goes better and better the less I try to control it and the more I try to let let myself be used as a, a vessel, as an instrument of service, of spiritual service. But in my relationships, it's so hard to let go of attachments because I love what I love. I love who I love. Like, how do you not attach to your nine-year-old daughter? So 
fear is so much more um, able to get in for me when it comes to relationships because I'm afraid of losing who I love. I'm afraid of of threatening a relationship or my daughter getting harmed or, or things like that, more so than I'm afraid of losing money or having my business not do well. So I'm more susceptible. I notice that that's a deeper practice for me when it comes to relationships. Because, I mean, I, I'm, I was divorced a couple of years ago, um, and that was really hard. I was grasping at that relationship. I mean, Matt was the father of my child, and we had been together for 12 years, and all of the signs that I was getting in the wake of my, my offering were saying, no, you've got to let this relationship go. This is impeding your growth. It's impeding his growth. And I didn't want that. That wasn't the answer that I wanted. All of my, all of my beliefs about loyalty and commitment and the institution of marriage and what will people think and not wanting to disappoint him and not wanting Sienna to not have her dad around and all of that was, you know, hugely looming and playing in on, on me. And then it got even, you know, it got really sticky during our divorce mediation process. And I had to call upon Tosha personally during this because it was so hard not to, not to let fear get in the way during divorce mediation. I mean, here we were, we had a prenuptial agreement because I had previously had some kind of scarring around men and my money. <laughs> and then when it came time to, to make an agreement, then it looked like we might wind up in court, like fighting the prenup. And I was terrified of having somebody try to take everything that I had worked so hard to create. And I called Tosha and I was like, oh, he's trying to take my business and my book, you know, my book revenue, my, my, my house, my kid, my, you know, d divorce is going to bring out all of your deepest fears of security and comfort and all of these sorts of things. And Tosha just ripped me a new one. <laughs> she was like, sweetheart, you have to get rid of the word my. Like, you wouldn't have anything if it weren't for God's largesse. Like, that is God's books and God's business and God's house and God's kid. Like, take the word my out of your vocabulary. If God wants to give everything to your husband, let him. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Right? I mean, talk about all of your fears coming up like Tyrannosaurus Rex, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, it was a huge practice for me of like, oh, I've got to let go of everything in, in this divorce mediation. I have to be willing to let go of everything. Now, that is no easy thing. So it was a deep, deep practice for me, and Tosha was amazing in her support of me. And I ended up writing a blog post about that conversation with Tosha. And because I never write about sensitive things without people's permission, I sent it to Matt to ask his consent. And he said, yes, he was willing to have me, you know, publish this publicly. And we went to divorce mediation the next day. And within 30 minutes, we had a settlement. And I ended up agreeing to a settlement that was bigger than what the prenup would have said that I needed to do, but it felt, it felt right. It felt like the right thing. It dropped in as that kind of intuitive knowing of here's the number. And two weeks later, I got a completely unexpected check in the mail in exactly the amount of the divorce settlement. Wow. And when I had agreed to give that number, I had no idea where I was going to get that money. It's not like I had that money sitting in the bank. <laughs> This seems, you know, for the this seems really magical for the people out there. And I've known you for a number of years now, so I know the authenticity of the story. 
But it's so hard for people to understand because we have been in this scarcity culture of hold on, grasp, you know, hoard it away. And, but it takes so much energy. And I've experienced the things that you're talking about when we just let go. And, and that would, that's a great example of you learning how to receive, receive the messages, let go. And I guess trust that space of unknowing. Well, and again, the more you do this, the more you get evidence. I mean, it has a very happy ending. My, my ex is living next door to me. My daughter just runs back and forth between our places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the settlement that we had gave him a feeling of security so that he can kind of get started in his own life. And it, it ended up kind of launching him on his own spiritual path. And he's now working for Tosha Silver. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So, and we're getting along great. And so the more I trust that, the more I see, wow, when I make these radical decisions, then when I look back, I can see, wow, I'm so glad I made that decision. I'm so glad I didn't let fear manage my divorce mediation because I could have ended up in court and we could have ended up with a, you know, big custody battle. We don't even have a custody agreement because we live so close. She just, it's like she sleeps wherever she feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I can see how beautifully my life has started to shift in the wake of learning to receive and being more egg and less sperm, as Christiane said, and practicing this offer of surrender and asking for help and being willing to receive divine support and human support and financial support and all the different ways that, you know, my, my savior complex as a doctor, you know, left, put me in these patterns of overgiving mm-hmm. and overdoing. And it's been, it's been a radical shift. It really has, but, and, and I'm certainly not free of fear. But I can say that it's rare that fear is making my big decisions now. It's still there, but it's like it's strapped into the car seat in the back seat of Lissa mm-hmm. instead of taking the wheel. And it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's such a radical practice that I, I find my fear showing up now in ways like, oh, my goodness, what else am I? What crazy thing is my heart going to ask me to do? And there's this cartoon that I love. I wish I could show it to listeners where there's two paths. It's like a convergence. It's a cartoon. One path is going to the right and the other path is going to the left. And there's signs and the path to the right says utter nonsense. And the path to the left says adult responsibilities. And the path to the right is the heart chasing butterflies. And the path to the left is the mind. And there's a little quote coming up and it says, this way, heart. (laughs) And it's the mind walking towards adult responsibilities and the heart chasing after other nonsense. And that's how it feels. It does. It feels like, wow, I'm being led in the direction of utter nonsense. But the more I trust that, the more I realize it's actually not utter nonsense. It's actually the path of truth. It's the path of inner peace. It's the path of aligned decisions. And, but it looks crazy to the mind. The mind is always saying, this way, heart, you know? <laughs> Well, and isn't that because there's so much conditioning that we've had through the years of this is the way you need to do it. We've had that scarcity mindset kind of conditioned into our brains and with the limiting beliefs that we've gotten in our culture. And so we have this programming and, but the heart is saying, no, this is, this is the way. Right. And, you know, it was a huge validation for me two weeks after I finished writing the fear care. And I had written about this worldview, you know, about, 
the four fearful assumptions, how uncertainty is unsafe, we can't handle losing what we cherish, it's a hostile universe and we're all alone, that I ended up at 16,000 feet in the Andes living in a Kara village in a hut with 10 people. And, you know, I had this sort of abstract idea of like this whole other worldview that would shift us into uh, a different mentality where fear wasn't leading our culture. And when I got there, I realized, wow, these people have, from all practical purposes, they have way more reasons to be afraid than we do, but they're not afraid. Mm -hmm. And they are operating from what I call the four courage cultivating truths. They believe that uncertainty is the gateway to possibility, that loss is natural and leads to growth, that it's a purposeful universe and that we are all one. And while I was there, for example, there's this woman in labor and I'm trained as an OBGYN. I said, well, you know, if you need any help, I'd be happy to help. And they said, no, no, no. The women in our culture, they, they don't even have a midwife. They go to their hut. They know how to deliver their baby by themselves. And so the next day I was checking in, how's the mom? How's the baby? And they said, oh, the baby died. And I'm devastated, right? Because I'm thinking, wow, maybe I could have intervened in all of my own programming around how things should be. That, mm-hmm. you know, I can't handle losing what I cherish was playing out there. And their worldview was completely different. And it's not that the mother wasn't grieving or that the village wasn't grieving and supporting her. But their whole worldview is, you know, Mother Earth gives and Mother Earth takes back. Pachamama gives, Pachamama takes the baby back. And they, they didn't even have a concept that said, oh, well, every baby should be born perfectly and every human should survive to be 90. That's not even part of their worldview. It's They're very in the flow of not resisting what is. They just accept what is. And there's a deep peace that resonates with them. These are the most joyful beings I've ever met, these indigenous people in the Andes. It was was shocking to me to see what that could look like and, and very validating to see that, like, wow, the worldview that we live by is a choice. All it is is a, it's just a thought form. Mm-hmm. And simply by changing our thoughts, we could change completely how we feel and how we operate and how we live. I met this woman there who's like 108. These people lived into their in, into the hundreds if they, you know, don't die in childbirth sort of thing. And, you know, I think a lot of it is that they're just not conditioned to live in this fight-or-flight stress response all the time. And in Mind Over Medicine, I, I wrote all about the scientific proof that the body knows how to heal itself and that, you know, these self-healing mechanisms only function when the nervous system is in relaxation response, that they all get disabled when we're in that fight-or-flight stress response. And every time we have a fearful thought, we activate the fight-or-flight stress response in the body and we turn off the self-healing mechanisms. So the whole first two chapters of the fear care are about the scientific data proving that fear is not just this emotion that holds us back. It is causing heart disease and cancer. So it's, you know, it's a choice. We can, we can change our thoughts and this is preventive health. This Mm -hmm. is how we increase our longevity, not to mention how we fall into that sort of deep place of inner peace and, end that cycle of constant, repetitive grasping and confusion and paralysis and, you know, anxiety and ruminating thoughts and, and these these sorts of fear-based patterns that make us miserable and sick. Well, Dr. David Hawkins and uh, Gay Hendricks have both been on the show and they've talked about going to third world countries 
and the happiness that people would have there versus, yeah. you know, walking on Fifth Avenue in New York or other areas of our country where there's quite a bit of affluence, but not the same happiness. And that right, right there is just an example of it's not our it's not our circumstances or our situations. It's it's our thoughts. Exactly. Well, Lissa, thank you so much for coming back again. This has been so beautiful to be to hear your journey and this fear cure process and also this idea and the stories of surrendering because that's so important to let go of the outcome. So I really appreciate you coming back. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Corinne. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening and I bless you all on your courage-inducing journey. <laughs> I'm circling back after my interview with Lissa Rankin, Dr. Lissa Rankin. And Lissa spoke so beautifully on fear, uncertainty, intuition, and surrender. And I love how she talked about it being a slow process. Did you notice her resistance when I asked her about fear and money and how she overcame it? She said, it's not a five-step process. Isn't that what I talk about on the show? I hope you caught that. I, I love that part because that's the real truth. I mean, even when she mentioned about the fear cure, the name of her book, right? So often I talk about how that is marketing that is done and that can create, that can trigger limiting beliefs that I should know this. I don't know if you caught, she had said she started this journey back in 2007. It's now 2015. And she will probably say that she's more on the beginner side of being connected to her intuition. So it takes practice. And I talk about this often on the show. It takes practice, 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 and practice some more. And it's not zoned out practice, but deliberate practice where you're really engaged. And again, it's not about being mindful 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and totally engaged. It's about really connecting in those areas that that there's a message that she was talking about. There's some a learning opportunity in dialing in. But then also I love the bit about surrendering and I'm going to practice that. It's something that I've been working on personally myself because that passage that I read from her book really resonated with me because that's the way that I used to operate for so long. It was about, I'm going to make it happen. And I remember when I interviewed Dr. Christian Northrup, it was such a beautiful interview because she was talking about how her body was telling her signs that she was not in the right place. And at that time, it was really about her marriage, that this marriage wasn't working for her, wasn't serving her any longer, and how to let go of that, how to walk away from that. And we had afterwards, we had talked about my job and how I had just left my job. And I, and she said, well, of course you did. You had to. Otherwise, if you had stayed, you probably would have gotten sick. So whether you think that's woo-woo or not, these are two physicians, something to consider. And then how do you check in and listen to your intuition and letting go? And while Lissa's stories seem very magical, this was seven to eight years in the process. It wasn't something that happened tomorrow. And I really invite you to consider that and meet yourself where you are today instead of comparing your journey to where she is. And I know sometimes like this morning when I was lifting weights, I was thinking, I just want to be where so-and-so is right now. Why can't I be there? We are the same age. That is a toxic thought. It's there. We... I can hold on to it and then I can trigger fear of being left behind or I can notice it and say, it's okay. 
I'm exactly where I need to be right now and accepting that and letting go of what my journey or what my path will look like. So I invite you to do that. You can get you, Lisa's talk and her stories can trigger you or you can look at it as the windows of possibility and what happens when you practice and where is your life going to take you? Obviously, when she was in medical school, I don't think she would thought that she would be doing what she's doing now, but here she is and uh, doing different things and even creating space in her business for time off and then what's been coming up and filling in her calendar. So what are small things that you can do? Maybe it's creating space of 30 minutes in the morning or it's 30 minutes in the in on the weekend. The more that you can get comfortable with creating space, that will help you deal with uncertainty because uncertainty is really about space. It's an area of my life that I continually practice. I've said this many, many times before. I was the queen of certainty. And there'll be times that I'll think, oh, I've shed that. I've shed that 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 need for certainty and look at me really thrive and be agile and be okay. And then all of a sudden something will trigger. It will be one of those deep fear triggers that she was talking about. And I will go and I will want that certainty. And I think I mentioned it on another podcast to the point where it becomes irrational. I think I just want to be 85 so that I know it all turned out right. And I will really hold on to that thought until I go, wait, so I want to lose 42 or 43 years of my life so that I know how it turns out and I can wake up tomorrow and be 82 or 83 or do I want to live my life now? Of course, I want to live my life now. There's so many great things about it, even with the fear and the uncertainty in my life. So we have these thoughts that go out there and the more that you can practice it, Anna Valcino and I talked about mindset and mind crack. Carol Dweck, who's a professor from Stanford, had said, the thoughts that you think can create the results in your life. This thought work, managing your mind, being deliberate in what you choose to listen to. What are the voices that are the truth and what are the voices that are the lies and getting really clear about that. There's a lot of great different practices. I've had Byron Katie on the show and she has a thing called the work. I help take my clients through this. We practiced it. You can understand it intellectually in five seconds. I know I dismissed it because it's like, really, this this simple thing, like Byron Katie, the work, four questions and a turnaround. I invite you, go do those turnarounds and email me to let me know how hard they are. They're really, really challenging. And then to be able to believe that you can just do this thought work and your things are supposed to feel different. It takes time to really wrap your brain around what is this belief and do I believe it? Not just saying something, but do I really believe it? Like to say, I am not worthy to, I am worthy. That's a huge jump. And when you have this deep seated belief that you are not worthy to just walk around and say, I'm worthy, I am worthy because I say it, it's, you're not going to believe it because it's not in your bones. It's just a top of mind. So the thought work does take time, but it really works and to reframe it. And the more you do it, the reframing becomes easier. I'll have to ask a friend if I can share a story because she had had this long old story and I reframed it for her. And I mean, it was something that she's held on for probably 20 or 30 years. And she always brings it back to, oh my gosh, you thought of this. So I'll ask her permission before I share that story. But remembering that it's a slow journey and that it's okay. This is your journey. Deliberate practice. It's, you know, really being deliberate about it. When I work on these things of uncertainty and trust and space and surrendering and letting go, I'm making conscious decisions. It's about these small choices that we make daily. 
It's about these small choices of what we make, we choose to listen to, what we choose to believe. And the other thing I want to address before I wrap up is I love how she talked about the different parts of ourselves, how in business she doesn't have as much fear, but there's that her family, her daughter getting in it, going through a divorce. That was more of a trigger. That was more tender, the relationships. And when she was talking about that, I think of like the inner circle. What are the things right around that heart space? And then maybe, and then I was thinking, okay, her business, even though it's something she loves, it may be on that outer rank. It may not be on that inner circle, but another circle. And then you just keep going further out. So she can have this great skill set of not letting fear drive her in um, when it comes to her business. But then she, the, the beautiful thing is she has that ability and then how does she practice it and implement it in something that can be such a trigger for her. So remembering all these things, that it is a process, it takes deliberate practice and meeting yourself where you are. I just invite you for that. Again, I know this all sounds so simple as we discuss it, but it can be challenging to implement. And did you recall how she reached out for support when her big fear issues came up with her divorce and child custody? So nobody is free from this idea of you can't reach out. You should go it alone. No matter how much work we've done in our own personal growth and how evolved we are within ourselves, we still need those support lines, those lifelines. And so the idea that we can and should go it alone is a toxic belief that gets in the way and can help perpetuate the fear and create the false fear that Lisa had mentioned. In my coaching practice, I help clients by being on their support team so that they can get to that knowing state to make decisions instead of letting fear hijack their actions. And we also work on reframing those limiting beliefs, or sometimes I call them the lies that we tell ourselves to instead we reframe it to what is really true. Go to howshereallydoesit.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter to gain insights, updates for future episodes so you never have to worry about missing a show and information about working with me. A special thanks to Lissa for lending her expertise to the show. And you can go to the show notes to link to her book. And also she has this free meditation for you guys uh, that you can download their audio meditations to help you with fear. And I will have also the blog post that she wrote about her husband or the conversation about Tasha that she had going through her divorce. If you like what you're hearing, please let me know by heading over to iTunes and leave a rating or a comment there. It really helps the show, you guys. There's an algorithm and then it helps spread the show and it helps us get out from being in hiding. And I want to give a shout out to longtime listener Todd Rule for taking the time to leave a comment on iTunes. Really appreciate you, Todd. And there are directions on the show notes about what to click to write a review. And I want to thank you for the emails of support. Until next time, I'm smiling big for you. And if you're ready, I'm here to help you. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming. She is drifting, never been so 